show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hello, welcome to Not the Virtual Pub. Welcome to my flat. Uh, because we're meeting face to face again, which we have done before. Hiya. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Nice to see you. Yeah. To see you nice. Are you sure you're okay? No, I'm. I don't. I, I feel drunk. I won't <laughs> lie. I feel drunk. I'm not drunk, but I feel drunk. We Just might giddily happy to be here. We might have had a big night out, <laughs> and um, and we're we're with the morning after. We're with we're having uh, gin and tonic. We're not talking about gin and tonic, but it felt quite Londony because I thought today I would give you a little rest. Thanks. Um, because you, frankly, you don't seem up to it. Um, <laughs> and take you on the first of an occasional series, perhaps, about pub names. Ooh. So I'm going to give you an A to Z of London and some little kind of facts and stories about pub names along the way. Please do. You up for it? You up for some story time? <sighs> pub crawl, the way I'm feeling. Yeah, it's a, pu- it's a pub crawl, but from my flat, essentially. Um, are we going to have a drink in every pub? We're going to sip this gin and tonic in every pub. Okay, yeah. We're not going to have 26 different drinks, no. That's another podcast not today, so that's yeah. another that's another podcast another day okay cheers then cheers oh mm. that's a heavy clunk it's been said all right <laughs> let's start with a then um a i've got is for the artful dodger mm. so there are lots of dickensian themed pubs and a lot of them seem to spring up in the 1980s obviously. Uh, London was going through this extra kind of cockney touristy phase of bringing back all these uh, Dickensian themes and like Victoriana to pubs. Some disappeared again, quite a lot disappeared again. Uh, There are a few that remain like the Artful Dodger, like the Betsy Trotwood um, that has survived, that's in Farringdon. And uh, rather satirically, the thieving Artful Dodger is actually situated on the site of the old Royal Mint. Mm. So that's quite pleasing. Um, and because it's an unusual name for a pub, I'll throw in the A of the Asparagus, which is a pub in Battersea. Uh, and that area used to be agricultural fields, and the market around it used to sell asparagus as Battersea bundles. They would tie them up and bundle them, and Battersea bundles was your asparagus, so that's why the pub is named that. Mm. B is for the Blind Beggar, and this takes its name from an Elizabethan poem called The Ballad of Bethnal Green. And it's about a young woman named Bessie who has a blind beggar as a father. And so none of the local knights want to marry her. Until one um, more humble knight says, yes, I will marry you despite your blind beggar father. At which point the father reveals himself to be the Earl of Leicester in disguise. Karma. Yeah. But the, uh, the reality of this pub is that it has seen a lot of action, aside from the story. William Booth, delivered his famous sermon there in 1865 which led to the foundation of the Salvation Army and on the 9th of March 1966 Ronnie Cray walked into the Blind Beggar pub in Whitechapel and shot George Cornell which was one of the murders that led to his uh, eventual conviction. What a pub. It's seen a lot of action that one. Mm. C is for Crown and Treaty. So this is taking us all the way to Upminster, still part of Greater London. 
Um, but it's worth it for this ride because we're, um, we're going further afield too. This building was used for negotiations between Charles I and the parliamentarians at the height of the Civil War in 1645. Although no actual treaty was signed there, it did give rise to the name of the Treaty Room, um, which was sort of all wood panelled. In the 1920s, an American billionaire named Armand Hammer, not Armand Hammer, and he didn't find Armand Hammer, but he's called Armand Hammer, um, decided he wanted to buy the wood panelling in the room and transported it to his New York office on the 78th floor of the Empire State Building. Just before she took the throne, Princess Elizabeth, as she was then, visited New York and saw the room meeting Armand Hammer. And then, and she liked it, she was interested in it. And then when she became queen, he sent her the wood panels back as a gift. And then she, in turn, returned it to the pub. So if you go to the Crown and Treaty now, you can see some very well-travelled wood panelling. Nice. <laughs> conversation starter when you're in there. Isn't it? Did you know? Did you know about this wood? <laughs> um, D is for Doggett's Coat and Badge, oh, situated on... Off the tongue. <laughs> it does. Uh, situated on the South Bank near Blackfriars. So Thomas Doggett was an Irish actor who set up the world's oldest boat race in 1715. And it runs between two pubs, both called The Swan, one in London Bridge and the other in Chelsea. And the winner receives a red coat with a badge which honoured the king at the time, George I. Um, now, not to perpetuate any stereotypes, uh, but the legend about this Irish actor, Thomas Doggett, says that the reason he came up with the race is because he may have been intoxicated when he fell into the Thames and was rescued by boatmen who were ferrying passengers across the water. So the race still exists. You can still see it every year in July, I think it is, in the summer. Um, e. Now, uh, in London, this has to be for Elephant and Castle. Yeah, of course. The tube station is well known, and there is a pub of the same name in that area, but there are other elephant and castles elsewhere too. And there is a story that it comes from the Spanish Infante de Castile, who was the, um, which was the title of the eldest daughter of the Castile monarch. But also, those symbols do appear as the crest of the Cutler's Company which is the City of London's livery companies. And these are mostly on the sites of coaching inns. We know the old Elephant Castle was a coaching inn for people coming into London. So that's the most likely answer, Yeah, is that they were taken from the Cutler's Company livery and they were put on signs so that people knew they could kind of take their horses and get them seen to. Gotcha. Get seen to. Uh, get them seen to. F uh, is for the flask. Uh, we mentioned a flask pub as part of our Haunted Pubs episode. Uh, there's one in Hampstead and there's one in Highgate, but we didn't mention the reason it was called that. So it actually signifies that they were selling bottled water from the nearby wells of Hampstead, which were popular for medicinal purposes, like so many other springs around the country. So they changed their name to that in the 18th century, which means that whenever you see a pub called The Flask, or has flask in its name, it's likely that they were the OG Evian or Buxton of their day. I can't think or of any other brands. Maybe Brecon. Oh, I don't know. Brecon. No, there's no. one called Brecon something. I just know Evian and Buxton really. Um, G is for the Great Spoon of Ilford. Oh, any any guesses as to why? Is it one of those weird places where you can just go and pay someone to cuddle you? 
<laughs> that's a nice interpretation. No, so it's um, it's a weather spoons, but oh. that's not what the spoon is referring oh, to. Okay. A spoon was a measure of beer, equivalent to about two pints. That's a big spoon, isn't it? Um, and why this particular measure at this location? So there was a famous clown and comedy actor in Shakespeare's company called Will Kemp. I think I have mentioned him before. Like Ross Kemp. Well, probably the ancestor of Ross <laughs> Kemp, indeed. Um, when he left the company to be a solo artist, essentially, to go on, go on tour as a solo artist, he did a stunt where he danced all the way from Norwich to London. Oh, he sounds great. 110 miles in nine days. And it's known that he decided to stop partway in Ilford for a spoon of beer. So a couple of... He stopped, in, he stopped dancing for a couple of pints before he, he did the like last leg to London. Friends. He, I mean, he was brilliant, yeah. Like, in all the older plays, when you look at the clown characters, he's the one who created those roles. And he improvised all the time. He was basically a stand-up in, in Shakespeare's plays. And so that's why Shakespeare has a couple of digs now and then, some of the actors saying the clown should play no more than their parts, because he would always go off script. <laughs> um, H is for Hand of Glory in Lower Clapton. Um, do you know what Hand of Glory is? Uh, I'm I'm in too silly a mood to answer that one probably. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, a hand of glory was the left hand of a hanged man, uh, which had been cut off, pickled. Know how you love pickles? Oh. Pickled and dried, uh, and then no, not used as a pub snack, uh, but it would be dipped in wax and then used as a totem to ward off evil spirits. Okay. So that's a hand of glory. H is also for hermit's cave in Camberwell and that was named after a guy called Samuel Matthews uh, he was an 18th century man who in grief for his deceased wife retreated into the Dulwich woods to live an isolated existence as a hermit well where does the cave part come in that's because he was found murdered in a cave in 1802 in a case which was never solved it's a very sad story really yeah. uh, so I'll give you a, a cheerio one to yeah, end on for do. H um, the happy something so the Harlequin. The Harlequin, okay. Yeah, it's next door to Sadler's Wells Theatre and it's named after the 19th century clown figures that you'd find in pantomime. Um, I went down a lot of actual and clown routes with these because that is my speciality yeah. uh, when it comes to history. So yeah, um, they're named after these 19th century clown figures in pantomime, which in turn comes from the older Italian Commedia dell'arte. And the leading Harlequin uh, of the 19th century was Joseph Grimaldi. And he was a regular performer at Sadler's Wells. And if you go into the Harlequin pub, you will find his farewell speech framed on the wall of the pub, which is worth um, a lovely read. He also has a blue plaque nearby. I think it's in Exmouth Market or thereabouts. And all it says is, Joseph Grimaldi, clown. <laughs> which I, I think anyone should be proud of for an, uh, an epitaph. I is for in. I double N. <laughs> so an in was traditionally more of a country affair it provided food and accommodation for travelers as opposed to a public house in the city so they're not often a city fixture as a name however um, in Hoburn you will find the inn of court which serves the inns of court um, in other words Gray's Inn, Lincoln's Inn, the Inner and Middle Temple and they're the professional associations to which barristers must belong so why are they called inns? Well, during the 12th and 13th centuries, law was taught in the City of London, but it was primarily taught by the clergy. 
And then there was um, what's called a papal bull, so a kind of an edict in 1218 that prohibited the clergy from practicing law in secular courts where the English common law system was being operated as opposed to the Roman civil law that they were operating under the church. Um, as a result, law began to be practiced and taught by laymen instead of clerics. And to protect their schools from competition, um, Henry II and then Henry III after issued proclamations prohibiting the teaching of civil law within the city of London. And the common law lawyers worked in guilds of law, so they were modelled on the trade guilds, um, which in time became the inns of court, and they would provide accommodation and support to the trainees. So they were very much like kind of the country inns, like come stay here, we'll feed you, we'll house you while you're learning and we'll look after you like a guild. Mm -hmm. So that's why they're called inns. Oh. And then, yeah, confusingly, there's a pub called the Inn of the Courts. Inn. <laughs> uh, Jay is for Jon Snow, mm. not Game of Thrones. Uh, Jon Snow in Soho, or the newsreader, in fact. So Jon Snow is known as the father of epidemiology because in 1854, he worked out that the local cholera outbreak was coming from the water pump on the streets where the Jon Snow pub is now located. So that stopped the outbreak and it disproved the idea that it was spread through the air as a miasma. He also pioneered anaesthetics, uh, not of the boozy kind, but chloroform, which he administered to Queen Victoria as she was giving birth. One of the first to do so. Not to give birth, to use chloroform. K could be for any number of king pubs. Mm -hmm. uh, we did go through a few in our royal episode. We did. Um, so I don't think I'm repeating stuff, but I'll tell you about the king and tinker in Enfield, mostly because I just love the word tinker. <laughs> Uh, the story goes that James I was going hunting in that area, big hunting grounds in Enfield, um, but stopped for a pint first and started chatting to a local tinker who didn't know who the king was. And when he asked um, James who he was, he replied that it would be revealed when everyone was hatless. Little riddle. The tinker only realised what that meant when the king's men then came to collect him and they all removed their hats in deference. And he was like, oh, I'm talking oh. to the king. <laughs> I will be behaved. <laughs> yeah, right. I didn't say anything that would get me. Uh, L is for liberty, as in liberty bounds just outside the city of London. And Romford's the Liberty Bell, which does not refer to the well-known American symbol of independence at all, which a, a lot of people think it is. Or Liberty X. Um, it's, liberty is the old term for area. So the first pub, Liberty Bounds, is just outside the area of the city. Um, and while Havering Palace used to be a royal residence and was in the Liberty of the Crown, mm -hmm. so it kind of means it belongs to or is part of the area. Um, but that place um, in, in, is it Havering or Havering? It's Havering here, Havering, isn't it? Yeah. Havering down here, Havering in Scotland. Um, <laughs> it went into uh, private hands in 1828, but the term Liberty still remains. So it's not kind of technically true, but they've kept the name. I've been to the Liberty Bell in Romford. Ah, oh. thumbs up, thumbs down. Romford, isn't it? Sure. Um, <laughs> M is, hi Romford. Um, M <laughs> is for Moon Underwater. Uh, this comes from George Orwell's fictional Perfect Pub, which he wrote about in a 1946 essay. Mm. Most of the pubs that are now named Moon Underwater, named after that, seem to be Weatherspoons. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of Weatherspoon uh, Moon Underwaters. I'm not sure whether George would approve of that or not. Uh, so let's see. 
I'm going to read through Orwell's stipulated 10 key points that his perfect pub in the London area specifically uh-huh. should have. Are we going to think about spoons in this? Okay. Maybe. Um, so he's, he had criteria that was different for country pubs, but in London, this is what he specified. The architecture and fittings must be uncompromisingly Victorian. Okay. I would say they mostly are in spoons. Yeah. Um, games such as darts are only played in the public bar so that in the other bars you can walk about without the worry of flying darts. <laughs> Three, the pub is quiet enough to talk with the house possessing neither a radio nor a piano. Which they don't, yeah. would approve. The barmaids know the customers by name and take an interest in everyone. Sorry, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> uh, five, it sells tobacco and cigarettes, aspirins and stamps, and is obliging about letting you use the telephone. They should bring that back. <laughs> right? I'd like aspirin, to be able definitely. To aspirin in the pub. <laughs> uh, six, there is a snack counter where you can get liver sausage sandwiches, mussels, a speciality of the house, cheese, pickles, and large biscuits with caraway seeds. Yeah, I can get on board with most of that. <laughs> Seven, upstairs, six days a week, you can get a good solid lunch. For example, a cut off the joint, two vegetables, and boiled, boiled jam roll for about three shillings. A solid lunch. Okay. <laughs> Curry night. Um, eight, a creamy sort of draft stout, and it goes better in a pewter pot. Nine, they are particular about their drinking vessels at the moon underwater, and never, for example, make the mistake of serving a pint of beer in a handleless glass. Apart from glass and pewter mugs, they have some of those pleasant strawberry pink china ones. But in my opinion, beer tastes better out of china. Can you imagine him being handed a stout in a pint glass that's still warm from the dishwasher? Yeah, he wouldn't really enjoy that. (laughs) And finally, ten, you go through a narrow passage leading out of the saloon and find yourself in a fairly large garden. Many... Um, many as are the virtues of the moon underwater, I think that the garden is its best feature because it allows whole families to go there instead of mum having to stay at home and mind the baby while dad goes out alone. <laughs> Don't want any kids in the pub, thanks. Mm-hmm. Orwell admitted that, to be fair, he did know of a few pubs that almost came up to his ideal, including one that had eight of the mentioned qualities. Uh, the essay finishes... And if anyone knows of a pub that has draft stout, open fires, cheap meals, a garden, motherly barmaids and no radio, I should be glad to hear of it, even though its name were something as prosaic as the Red Lion or the Railway Arms. You should come to Wales, so you'd have a whale of a time. That's terrible. <laughs> mm. N, mm-hmm. the Nelly Dean of Soho, oh, uh, yes. is... Actually, not a, um, named after a person. It's named after a person in a song. It's a fictional person. It became popular in pubs and music halls of the early 20th century. Um, the narrator of Wuthering Heights is called Nellie Dean, but it's unrelated to the song Nellie Dean, which became popular and was sung everywhere. So there you go, not a person, in case you were wondering when you were going through Soho. Very good pub, I like the Nellie Dean. Um, have a real Nellie instead, the Nell Gwyn Tavern, which is near Covent Garden. So Nell Gwynne was an acclaimed actress mentioned by Samuel Pepys and supposed lover of the king as well. But she was born and raised in St. Martin's in the Fields and prior to acting, she sold fruit in Covent Garden Market. So there you go, you're going to drink in her neighbourhood. O is for one over the eight. So one over the eight um, originated as UK military slang 
And the first reference uh, to it that I can find is soldier and sailor words and phrases from 1925. So obviously like, it predates that, but that's the earlier reference. And it says, one over the eight, one drink too many, slightly intoxicated. The presumption being that an average, uh, a moderate man can safely drink eight glasses of beer. So what it means is, as long as you're drinking up to eight, you should be fine. But if you have one over it, then you're drunk. That's where one over the eight comes from. Um, we'll try that later. However, <laughs> at this pub, at one over the eight, the eight isn't spelt like the number, it's spelt A-I-T. Mm-hmm. And that's because an eight, in that sense, is a small island, particularly in the Thames. So those little sort of sometime populated islands you find like um, Eel, Eelpa Island, those are called eights. And where this one is situated, uh, the pub is located just opposite the Brentford eight, hence the pun, one over the eight. Nice. P, um, so there is a, a pub on our old haunts of Chancery Lane, when mm-hmm. we worked in that area, called The Pregnant Man. What? Why didn't we go there? It's kind of, it's a little bit hidden, it's down, sort of down the side of the it's, cha- it's actually on Chancery Lane, but you know Chancery Lane is like a small road that comes off the main yeah. Hoban High Street, so um, that's possibly why. So the story behind this, and I've picked this one out especially for you, not just because it's our old neighbourhood, but the story behind this is marketing. Oh, God. Um, I won't say marketing bullshit, because I think it's actually pretty good. So in the 1970s, marketing giant Saatchi and Saatchi created an ad for the Family Planning Association, and it was a picture of a very pregnant man with the caption, would you be more careful if it was you who got pregnant? And... So this campaign was very successful. It was originally on display in their private pub that they had within their offices in Charlotte Street, where we also used to work. Um, But then they moved their office to Chancery Lane. And when they did that, they decided to put the pub on the ground floor instead and just open it up to everyone um, as a commercial entity. But you can still see that original poster in there that is the poster of the pregnant man. And the pub is called The Pregnant Man. Well, well, we should go there. I want to go there. Yeah. That's fun, isn't it? Spreadsheet. Can you believe I told a marketing story and didn't slag you off? I was waiting for it. Yeah, it didn't happen. All right, Q. Mm-hmm. When George III was suffering with mental illness, in order to try and keep it quiet, they moved him into his physician's house on Queen's Square. The queen in question, his queen, was Queen Charlotte, and she hired a larder in the nearby pub in order to stock provisions for him. And when news got out about the illness, the pub just became nicknamed the Queen's Larder, and it remains that today. Nice story. I like mm. that one. R. So, I have to mention Red Lion, yeah. because it is the most popular pub name in the UK. But where did it come from? So, it goes back, like so many pub names, to the Wars of the Roses, specifically John of Gaunt. He was the 14th century son of Edward III and nephew of Richard II, and his own son would become Henry IV. So when Richard II was ruling, John left for his wife's homeland, which was Castile, and their coat of arms was the Red Lion. So after the peasants' revolt was ended by Richard II, he became really unpopular, and So taverns, where the common people went, started displaying the Red Lion of John of Gaunt and Castile, sort of in protest of Richard. Richard responded by insisting that they display his heraldic symbol instead, which is the White Heart, 
not a heart shape, but like a mm-hmm. stag. So John Agorn actually did end up coming back to England to support Richard and quell the descent. So it didn't turn into that war that perhaps the peasants thought it would. Um, however, he does win out in the end because while the White Hart has 301 pubs, um, the Red Lion is 529. So that spirit of peasant revolt remains. Yeah. Five, how many? 500? 529 pubs called the Red Lion. Whoa. In the UK, yeah. All right. Um, S. I'm going to go with Spit and Sawdust, which is actually the pub um, uh, near me where I go quizzing every week. Mm. Um, and the owners of it heard Spit and Sawdust as a phrase when they were visiting another pub. Um, I think it was in Nottingham, maybe, or Norwich, it was one of those. So they heard they heard this phrase, spit and sawdust, and thought, oh, that would be good to name our pub when we get one. And they have. But so where does that come from? Uh, the um, So it's a colloquial British phrase, which um, means a pub, which is more basic. It lacks comforts. It's kind of, yeah. Um, and it refers to the practice that the basic pubs would have of covering the floor with sawdust. Um, So, you know, no kind of sticky carpets, um, Mm. just sawdust on the floor, and then customers would spit into them, (laughs) basically. Um, So I've got got some text that mentions it from the English poet John Macefield, which is uh, early 20th century, I think this was. So it tells the story of Saul Cain, who was a drunkard and a poacher. Um, And then he has kind of this spiritual moment and converts back to being good again. They were all about that at that that period. Um, But this is the extract that mentions spit and sawdust, which I think is the earliest example we have of the phrase, at least written down. She took my tumbler from the bar, besides where all the matches are, and poured it out upon the floor dust among the fag ends, spit and sawdust. Quite pretty, despite the context. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. There you go. T. One of the oldest pubs in Westminster is the Two Chairmen, and you will find many more in cities. And the sign depicts two men carrying a sedan chair. Um, do you know what I mean by the sedan chairs? Yeah. So they kind of, yeah. You, one person sits in them and then they pick them up and carry them. Um, and really, that was the old equivalent of drunkenly requesting an Uber after a big night out. So you find these um, these sedan taxis on the streets next to blue posts, which is why you'll also find pubs called the Blue Posts. Um, like there's a, a music venue in Shoreditch called the Blue Posts. The one in Westminster um, particularly attracted people who were happy to splash their cash because it was opposite the Royal Cockpit Theatre, which of course means drinkers were betting on blood sports, uh, which you can hear about in our pub games episode. But yeah, that's what the two chairman refers to. It was um, the pub you came to when you knew you needed a taxi home at the end of the night. Yep. <laughs> U is for unicorn, uh, as in the lion and unicorn. There's one in Kentish Town that has a theatre above it, which I actually used to perform at quite regularly, that one. Um, the lion stands for England and the unicorn for Scotland. So whenever you see lion and unicorns, those are the heraldic uh, beasts of the nations. I did not know that about Scotland. Didn't you? No. Yeah, their their heraldic beast is the unicorn compared to our lion. Um, so yeah, so when you get unicorns, it's generally referring to Scotland. When you get lion and unicorn together, 
what that's probably referring to is um, the 1603 accession of James I of England and VI of Scotland, because it was the first time we had a king representing both nations on the throne. So usually it means that those pubs' history go back to that moment. Gotcha. V uh, is a reminder from our Haunted Pubs episode, again actually, about the volunteer. Mm -hmm. There are a few of those around because taverns displayed signs that were used to recruit locals into the army, uh, right from the Napoleonic Wars up to the First World War. They would do that. Uh, V is also for the Viaduct Tavern, situated on the Hoban Viaduct, which was opened in the 1860s by Queen Victoria, as an easier way to navigate the Fleet River Valley. so people would have to go quite a long way, actually, to get through that. They would, especially if they're taking horses and carts, they would have to go down hills, over rivers, up again. Mm-hmm. So it was um, really um, popular. Uh, it also has the dubious honour of being the home to the world's first coal-fired power station uh, there, which was destroyed by bombing during the Blitz. So it doesn't exist there now, but that's that's where it was, mm-hmm. around the Viaduct Tavern. W has to be um, the world's end. Yes. It's a popular name uh, in London, but also across the country. It doesn't originate from London, but from a 16th century woman in Yorkshire called Mother Shipton, who was always predicting tragedy. Um, I mean, we've we've all met someone like that. Uh, (laughs) So she was said to have predicted the Spanish Armada and the Great Fire of London. And although she said there would be an end to the world, she didn't say when. So I guess watch this space. Still waiting. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to give a quick London-specific one as well, The Wolf and Whistle. Uh, This is not dedicated to catcalling. This is in Tavistock Square, which was home to Virginia Woolf's Bloomsbury Publishing. So it is actually spelt W-O-O-L-F. And also the business-centred Tavistock Hotel, where the suits that frequent it uh, are referred to in Cockney rhyming slang as whistle and flute. So because it was Virginia Woolf and because there were whistling flutes, people in suits, it's the Wolf and Whistle. I like that one. Yeah. Um, X. So. That's a hard one. <laughs> as far as I know, there are no pubs beginning with X that yeah. I found. And I didn't really find any with EX either, of interest at least. So I bring you the Cross Keys. Ah. Uh, mm-hmm. See what I've done there? Yeah. So <laughs> these are named after St. Peter, the first Pope and gatekeeper of heaven. There are four Cross Keys pubs in central London, and then there's this outlier over in Dagenham. Um, I'm not saying Dagenham's not in London, but it was very much distant from the other four. Um, So I looked up their locations on Google Maps in a kind of conspiracy theorist kind of way, and you can form a cross with them, (laughs) with their locations. Do you want to take a guess of where the centre is? Is it like a prison or something? Kind of. It's Buckingham Palace. Ah. Yeah, Buckingham <laughs> Palace is at the centre of the cross of the four clubs called the Cross Keys. Illuminati. It's Illuminati, man. <laughs> uh, y. So it wouldn't be a Y pub without ye old something. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said before, these weren't originally the letter Y, but the similar old English symbol thorn, which makes the representative sound um, So these pubs are only Y in a special way, um, and we should really be just calling them the old. Mm-hmm. Um, the old in that in that uh, vein, Swiss cottage, I think is the most iconic looking because it is designed to look like a Swiss chalet yeah. right in the middle of Finchley Road. That's great. Yeah, 
Um, it was built in the early 1800s on the site of an old cottage that was used by a toll gate keeper. And the underground station and the area around it are named after that pub. And we're at Z. Mm. So I'm going to give you, to round off, the Zetland Arms. Um, which I just go fairly recently actually. It's convenient if you're going to the V&A Museum or the Natural History Museum in South Kensington because there actually aren't a lot of pubs around the area and they get packed because of all the tourists. So it's just sort of around the corner and it's it's got nice space. There you go, top tip. So um, Zetland Arms is reputed to have been owned by Charlie Chaplin, although other sources just say it was his brother who was the landlord, but maybe he sort of had some hand in the money handling. There are a few Zetland arms knocking around the country, and they refer to the old name for Shetland, as in the Shetland Isles. So they used to be called Zetland mm-hmm. before they turned into Shetland. Zetland was the old, was the Norse origin because obviously they were very Norse. Um, so it gradually developed with English. However, the postcode there remains ZE. So if you're ever wondering why Shetland's postcode is ZE, that's why it used to be called Zetland, and it's kept held onto it. I like it. That there's a lot of knowledge here. Yeah that's, that's, all, yeah, that's A to Z. We are done. We have completed our little A to Z London pub crawl. I learned a lot. I'm not going to remember most of it, but <laughs> thanks. <laughs> we enjoyed the journey nonetheless. <laughs> so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to visit all of those pubs for real. We will see you next time after 26 pints. Maybe. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. Cheers. <laughs> Wherever I may roam, or land or sea or home, you can always hear me. Show me the way to go home.